9, if you're not there already. Hebrews 9. And let's open the word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this morning we come before you boldly in Christ alone. Heavenly Father, I know that after the songs that we have just sung, the truth that we have just proclaimed, my heart is soaring. What a love. What a cost. This, the power of the cross. Heavenly Father, Father, it is that cross that we proclaim. It is that cross that we will focus on even this morning. And Heavenly Father, I must confess that my heart aches with the burden. But if there is anyone here this morning who does not know Jesus Christ as their Savior, that even today they would turn in faith, that they would know the hope, the power of that cross. Heavenly Father, my heart this morning aches for those of us who take it for granted. And so even this morning, as we look at this passage, may we see the cross of Jesus Christ. May we see you high and lifted up, and may we rejoice at what is ours in Christ. May our hearts soar together this morning as we rejoice in the gospel, as we proclaim to one another, look what my God has done. May you be honored in all that we say and do. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to join me, Hebrews 9. I had Jordan read the rest of the passage, but we're really going to focus on one verse this morning, Hebrews 9, 15. You probably know someone like my brother Edward. My brother Edward is a very careful person, and by careful I mean overly cautious. Edward's the type of guy who, um, well, let me give you an example. Ping pong. Edward always beats me in ping pong. See, it's not because Edward's necessarily better than me at ping pong. It's because Edward is so careful that he never takes any chances. He just hits it back to you. He'll just hit it back all game long. He won't try to get you out. He won't, he'll let you get yourself out. He's just hitting it back. Maybe that means he is better than me. Maybe I should start doing that. But I'm the type of player who likes to take chances. I like to, you know, if I get a chance, I like to slam it on you. I like to get you out. I want to get you out. Edward's just fine if you get yourself out. 
He's cautious. He's careful. He's fundamental. In basketball, in soccer, he was never the most, most athletic person on the field, and yet he was always competitive because he was fundamental. He was good at those fundamentals. He never took chances. Growing up, we spent a lot of time together cleaning in my dad's business. And it became evident pretty early on that we had two different approaches to cleaning. It would take Edward twice as long to clean a room as it took me. Because Edward was careful. He was slow. Very slow. Now don't get me wrong, he did an excellent job of cleaning. He just moved at a different pace than I did. See, when I get cleaning, I get locked in. I am focused. I am moving. I try to efficiently get a building done. I try not to walk past the same place twice. I'm just, I am moving. I am going. I am grabbing things. I am dusting, vacuuming. Edward is careful. Slow moving. See, we get paid the same amount of money to clean a building, whether it took us two hours or 45 minutes. And I always push for the 45 minutes. And yet the reality is that the faster you move, the more you miss. I got it done quicker. But if I'm being honest, Edward's side was probably a little bit cleaner. He was more careful than I was. In fact, there were many times when my father would have to tell me, Josh, slow down. This is not a race. Take it easy. Take your time. Make sure you are doing a good job. I know for a fact that my dad never had to tell Edward to slow down. <laughs> See, it's not that I wasn't doing a good job. It's just that I was, I was at a higher risk of making a mistake. I was, just, I was moving too quickly. I needed to be more careful. I needed to just slow down. Take a breath. It's not a race. Sometimes it's good to slow down. And this morning as we come to this passage, I think it is good for us to slow down and to meditate on the things that we've seen over the last several weeks. Hebrews 9.15 really is a gospel verse. It's not one of those that we often go to. It doesn't jump to the top of the list when you think of you know, someone, someone's in, you're walking through the gospel with someone. This is not the first place that you jump to. We think of verses like John 3.16. The reality is that Hebrews 9.15 is a gospel verse. So we're going to do something we haven't done in a while. This morning we're going to focus on one verse. We're going to move our way through this. You may have noticed over the last several weeks as we've been walking through Hebrews that Hebrews can get extremely technical. The author is really digging into the details. I mean, all of this talk of covenants and high priests and, and the tabernacle of Melchizedek. It can become exhausting. Really, it can become almost confusing. And we've walked through a lot of that in the last few weeks. And, and this morning I want to pause and I want to make sure that you're not sitting there saying, wait, what did the tabernacle have to do with this? What about Melchizedek? So as we come to Hebrews 9.15, it's an opportunity to take a breath and to bring it all together, to make sure that we are following 
before we charge forward. So this morning, as we work our way through this verse, we'll see mediation, redemption, and possession. Mediation, redemption, and possession. First thing we see this morning, the beginning of Hebrews 9.15, is mediation. You have a mediator. Hebrews 9.15 is kind of a a, a verse that is a a transition. It it fits both at the end of Hebrews 9.1-14 and it fits in verses 16 to the end of the chapter. It fits with both of those and yet it is a good verse that stands alone. It connects the two. It takes what the author has said and points the arrow forward to where the author is going. And it starts out with this phrase, and for this reason. For this reason. This reason is really everything that the author of Hebrews has been saying. This reason is the fact that Jesus is a superior priest with a superior ministry. Jesus' ministry is superior by time. We've noted that, have we not? That that this is an eternal high priest. It goes on. His ministry does not end. And like the ministry of the old covenant priests, his ministry is superior by time. His ministry is superior by location. That's the whole idea of this tabernacle. We've been talking about that the last few weeks. The the tabernacle on earth, earth, which was a, a shadow of something greater. Where Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father in the throne room of heaven. He is a high priest for eternity whose ministry does not end. He's a high priest in the very presence of God. He's a high priest with the superior sacrifice, not the sacrifice of blood and of goats, but with his own blood he entered. With his own blood. Superior sacrifice that brings an eternal redemption. He's a high priest with a superior effect. Unlike the blood of bulls and goats that sanctifies the flesh, how much more the blood of Jesus that purifies the conscience. There's a difference there between just sanctifying or cleansing the flesh and getting to the very heart, to your conscience. A real change. Purification from the inside out. So for this reason, who Jesus is, his superiority, by nature he is the Son of God, and by his superior nature as this eternal high priest, eternal, in the presence of God, entering by his blood, cleansing our consciences. For this reason, he is the mediator. He, uniquely, Jesus Christ, there is no one else who is qualified to be this mediator. 
It is Jesus Christ alone. He's the only one who stands forth as qualified. He, for this reason, because of who he is, because of his ministry, he is the mediator of the new covenant. He is the mediator. The idea of a mediator has legal connotations. In fact, the, the actual word that is used here in the original language in other literature of the day is the same word that is used to refer to a peacemaker in a business dispute. When two sides cannot agree, there is one who comes in between and who brings them together. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. He is the one who brings together the two sides that have been torn apart. God and man. It's not the first time in the book of Hebrews that we have seen the language of mediator. In fact, go back with me, if you will, to Hebrews 8, verse 6. says this, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. He is a mediator, a go-between of a better covenant, on better promises. He's the mediator of the new covenant. Again, the new covenant. This is a covenant of which we have discussed. It's a covenant introduced in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, where it's first promised to Israel and to Judah. And then in Hebrews 8, 8 to 12, where the author of Hebrews repeats that covenant. It is still a covenant made with Israel and Judah, and yet, all believers benefit from this. All believers benefit. Really what you see here in these first few words, there's nothing new here. We've already seen the language of mediator. We've already talked about the new covenant. For this reason, all of this stuff that's going on. So really what we see here in these first, this first phrase is that the author of Hebrews is just, he's bringing it all together for us. We've been talking about mediation. We've been talking about the new covenant. We've been talking about Jesus and his superior ministry. This is how it all comes together. For this reason, who Jesus is, what he has accomplished, his superior ministry, because of all that, he is the mediator, the one who comes between, who brings the two sides together of this new covenant of which we have discussed. This is Jesus' doing. But how? How could he do this? These two sides that have been torn apart, God and man. We know the cost of sin, do we not? We know the story of the fall. Jim, this morning in Sunday school, just took us through Genesis. Genesis 3. The curse of sin when man is separated from God, condemned to death. Condemned to eternity in hell, separated from God because of your sins. 
Not because God is mean, but because you deserve it and God is just. How can Jesus bring these two sides together? Look at this last phrase here, in this, this last few words in this first phrase. By means of death. By means of death. Again, this is not an entirely new idea. It's already been introduced to us in the book of Hebrews. The idea that, that Jesus has entered into this tabernacle, this heavenly tabernacle, the presence of God, by means of what? By his blood. Not the blood of bulls and goats, but his blood that has been shed. It is by means of his death that he is the mediator of this new covenant. And really, this is the connection going forward. The author will focus on the effect of Jesus' death more. In fact, going forward, as, as, as um, Jordan read this morning, we see that in, in the passage going forward, even here in chapter 9. The idea of a will. Someone must die. But here it ties specifically to Jesus' role and establishes its necessity. He is this mediator because he has died. It was necessary that he die. In fact, the rest of the benefits that we see in this verse all come because he has died. In fact, when you back up and you look at this verse, it is this first phrase, for this reason... He is the mediator of a new covenant by means of his death. That, that is really the meaning of this verse. We could stop right there. And you would understand what the author of Hebrews is trying to tell you in this verse. That's it. The rest of this verse is really just further explanation of this first statement. It is the benefits of the necessary death of Jesus Christ that we will see in the rest of this verse. Because of who Jesus is and his ministry, he is qualified to be the mediator, the go-between between you and God who brings about this new covenant because he has died. And that is good news for you. That you have a mediator like that. A mediator who is able to span that gap by his death. But how exactly does this work? What do we mean by means of his death? That's what you see next, redemption. In this next phrase, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant. We see two sections here, the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant. We're really going to attack this side opposite of how it's listed here. We're going to start with the transgressions under the first covenant. Because redemption is necessary because there are transgressions. The transgressions under the first covenant. Again, the idea that we are sinners. The law establishes that fact. You are a sinner. The transgressions under the first covenant. You see, the first covenant, the, the law does not make you a sinner. What it does is it shows your sin. It magnifies it. It shines a light on it. It says, look, you are a sinner. 
It's Paul's argument in, in Romans 7. The Paul, where Paul says that, that if it were not for the law, I would not know sin. In Bible college and uh, seminary, one of the classes you have to take, or several of the classes you have to take, are around the idea of homiletics. It's really the art of preaching. And they deal with, with things like hermeneutics, your approach to Scripture, putting together an outline, writing a sermon, and then, and then actually the idea of, of preaching it, of getting up and, and the cadence, if you will, of preaching. It's an enjoyable class. I, I enjoy homiletics classes. And it's probably one of the most painful classes because one of the exercises that they do in a homiletics class, a lot of homiletics classes, is for class you'll have to write sermons and you'll have to preach them. But one of the things they do is when you preach it, they record you. And then part of your homework for that week is to go back and to watch your sermon so that you see what everyone else sees. I don't know if you've ever watched yourself on video. It's not fun. It is awkward. It's humiliating. Do I really sound like that? But why do they do that? What's the purpose of that? As you do that, it really shines a light on your weaknesses. Wow, I said, um, a lot. Oh, well, I look down a lot. I'm not making eye contact. I'm, I'm too quiet. I'm too loud. Which is probably, I fall more on that side of things. I've heard. It shines a light on those weaknesses. It really brings them out. You are well aware. You can't ignore them. You see, when you watch that video, that, that video is not what makes you a poor speaker. It just shines a light on where you're weak. It's the same idea with the law. The law did not make you a sinner. It simply shines a light on where you are weak. It shines a light on your sin. It proclaims you are a sinner beyond all argument. We know that we are sinners. The law shows us our sin. We know also that the wages of sin is death. We know the penalty. You deserve to die. Your sin condemns you to hell, separated from God, justly. The transgressions into the first covenant condemn you. That's where you get to this first part of the sentence, the redemption of those transgressions by means of death. You see, you need redemption. You don't need to get better. You don't need to to fix yourself. You are separated from God. You cannot take one step closer to God. You need redemption. 
The idea of redemption, you, you could probably, many of you, if you've grown up in church and Sunday school, you could probably give me the definition. It's, to be, it's the idea of being bought back, to buy back. The idea here is that Jesus' death secures our redemption. To buy us back, as preachers will often say, from the slave market of sin. To pay the penalty that you deserve to pay. You are a sinner. You owe a debt. Your wage is death. And Jesus, by his death, paid that for you. Hebrews 9.12 talks of eternal redemption. Look with me, if you will, at verse 11 and 12 of Hebrews 9. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands that is not of this creation in the very presence of God, not with the blood of goats and calves. We've already discussed this verse, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. See, not only are you redeemed, you are eternally redeemed in Jesus Christ. Forever, for all time, your sins are paid for. Every single sin that you have committed and that you will commit in Jesus Christ have been paid for. It's a song that we we sing sometimes. Our, Our sins, they are many, but what? His mercy is more. Our redemption is eternal. For the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant. The death of Jesus opens the door. In his death, Jesus brings both God and man together by both satisfying God's wrath and cleansing man of sin. You have a mediator, Jesus Christ. The only one. There was redemption in Jesus Christ. Salvation. And then finally, possession. Possession. Look at the flow of this verse. It starts with, for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of his death. For, for what? What does this death accomplish? Well, for the redemption of transgressions of the first covenant. For salvation, redemption, paying the price that you owe. That, right, so it does this. It brings salvation, redemption, to the end that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. You have been redeemed to an eternal inheritance. That those who are called. This idea of of calling, it's a word that we are familiar with in the New Testament, specifically in in Paul's writings. It's the idea of the effectual call of salvation. By effectual, I mean all who are called, all are saved. This is something you see very clearly in Romans 8. Turn with me there, if you will.
Romans 8, starting in verse, really 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he justified. Whom he justified, these he glorified. It's a call to salvation. You see that again in Romans 8, 24, Romans 9, verses 24 to 26. 1 Corinthians 1, 9. Galatians 1, 6 and 15. Ephesians 4, 1. 1 Thessalonians 5, 24. 2 Thessalonians 2, 14. 2 Timothy 1, 9. All of these verses talk of this call of God. The call of God to salvation. You see, the wonder of salvation is not that you have chosen God. The wonder of salvation is that God, he knows you. He knows your heart. He knows your sins. He knows your rebellion. And yet he chose you. And yet he called you. And yet he saved you. Because you see, those who are called, what's the next two words? May receive. May receive. Those who are called receive. It is effectual. It is sure. The calling of God, those who are called, will receive. It is guaranteed. All who come will receive. You see, if it were not for the blood of Jesus Christ, if it were not for his death and the redemption that that death brings, then the call of God could not be answered. There would be no call. Because man would still be separated from God by sin. But the call of God may be received because of the redemption by means of the death of Jesus Christ, our mediator. That those who are called may receive what? The promise of the eternal inheritance. There we see our key word again that we've seen in the last several verses, last several chapters, eternal. We have an eternal high priest with an eternal ministry that brings an eternal redemption so that we inherit an eternal inheritance. I think the author of Hebrews wants us to catch something there. This is not up to you. It's not something that, that you get and that you keep. This is what God has accomplished. And it is eternal. Never ending. Everlasting. His redemption knows no end. And therefore our hope knows no end. We are guaranteed to receive this inheritance because we have been called, because we have been redeemed, because of the death of Jesus Christ, our mediator. An eternal inheritance. An eternal inheritance that comes because of an eternal redemption. 
That word inheritance, it's a powerful word. Especially here in this chapter here in Hebrews. Just back up and think of what this means. Think of the audience of the Hebrews. It is to Jewish believers. They have an inheritance through Abraham of land, of people, of promise. And we, the world, have an inheritance of blessing through them, through Jesus Christ. They have this new covenant that they will inherit that is promised to them and we also participate in that and we rejoice in that. All who are called receive the promises of God. All of the promises that God has made to you, whether you are Jew or Gentile, all of them you will inherit. All of them you will receive. And all of that goes back to the very first statement in this verse. For this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of his death. And it is that death that secures all the rest of this. Because he died, he secured redemption. That those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. So you see, this is a gospel verse. I remember as a kid, there were many times when my dad would say to me, when you get older, you'll understand and you'll thank me for this. A lot of times those came when I was being punished or not allowed to do something. But the reality is that the perspective of age and experience does change your attitude to those things. I am thankful for the rules that my parents had, the decisions that they they made. Now, as I see their wisdom in that, I'm thankful for parents who loved me enough to punish me when I did wrong. I'm thankful for my parents who who taught me manners and built good habits into me. It turns out, and and if you're still living with your parents, you'll probably want to write this down. (laughs) It turns out that parents really do know what is best. They truly are speaking from experience, and they do understand See, this morning we've not discussed anything that we've not already established over the last several weeks. It's it's nothing new. It's nothing that we didn't know. We've talked about our mediator, something we've talked about already the last few weeks. We've talked about the new covenant, something we've talked about the last few weeks. We've talked about this redemption, eternal redemption, something that, that we've known before our series in Hebrews, but something we've really been driven home recently. We've talked about this inheritance, this salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ. Really, what we've talked about this morning is the gospel. We know this. And yet, maybe, I pray, Lord willing, that slowing down a bit this morning has allowed you to step back and maybe to examine the truth of the gospel from a different, a more appreciative perspective this morning. Lord willing, this morning you've gained a new appreciation for what God has done for you in Christ. This is not new, but it's no less good. 
It is good for us to meditate on the truth of the gospel. It is good for us to return to this and to remember our hope in Jesus Christ. The application this morning is simple. It's a call to appreciate and to rejoice in the gospel. It's a call for us to pause this morning from our busy lives, even our our busy and fly-through of Hebrews, it feels like, to pause and to reflect on these truths. To pause. To think them through for a second. To proclaim them to one another. Look who my God is. Look what he has done. Studying a book like Hebrews can be exhausting, and yet it is good. And it's good for us to pause and to recognize how deep, how these deep truths of Hebrews apply very practically to our life and to our salvation. All of this means something to you. Jesus, as your high priest, as your mediator, the new covenant, redemption from the sins of the old covenant, the fact that you are called, the promise of an eternal inheritance, it means something for you. It means that your hope is sure. That the gospel in which you have believed, if you have believed, that it is sure. And so this morning, cling to that. If you are wavering, if you are struggling in your faith, be encouraged this morning. Be reminded of your Savior and his salvation. Rejoice in the gospel this morning. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never believed. I would not be foolish enough to think that in a room this size, even of of mostly people who have attended here most of your lives, there's not someone who's not saved. See Jesus Christ this morning. See the gospel. Maybe from a new perspective. Maybe this morning your eyes have been opened as they've never been opened before. Won't you believe? Won't you believe? Won't you place your faith in Jesus Christ alone? You cannot save yourself. You are a sinner. Even your good works are stained with the stench of sin. There is nothing that you can do to take one step closer to God. Won't you believe this morning in Jesus Christ and find salvation, find redemption, find hope? If you're here this morning and you have any questions, I would encourage you, seek me out after the service. I'll be here at the front or you can find me in the foyer. I'd love nothing more than to sit down with you, to open a Bible, and to point you to Jesus Christ.